Love you to just kind of feel fresh and re- revived, so that you know we can, uh, you know, really concentrate on God's word this morning. When you're ready to sit down, you can take a seat, and uh, you know, hopefully, feeling a little bit more comfortable. Thanks, mate. See, and even had time for Josh to serve me. That was, that's fantastic. Um, I don't know about you, but can I just say I love it when Patricia reads the Bible. So I'm not sure I'm supposed to say that from here, but Patricia, I joy, I love your accent. It's just brilliant. Anyway. <laughs> It's just a little joy that I have. Anyway, thank you, Patricia. Uh, friends, let's pray. Now, gracious God, thanks so much for the wonderful privilege of your word. Thank you that it is truth, that it is light, that it is hope, and that it is true. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to hear it well this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, well, on the screen you have four pictures well, not yet you don't. Now you do. There you go. Um, top left-hand corner. Does anyone know what that momentous occasion is? The fir- By whom? The Wright brothers. The first. Anyone know when that was? None of you were born. 1903. 1903. And then um, the next one on your top right. Yeah, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima or Hiroshima in 19... 19- 45. Uh, and then on the left-hand bottom, Martin Luther King delivers his I Have a Dream speech in 1962. Some of us still aren't born. And uh, then the last one, I think we probably mostly are. Uh, everyone know what the last one is? 9-11. Yep, yep, the attacks in 9-11, 2001. Um, you know, there are some moments or events in life that have the power to change our world, don't they? Uh, There's just a a little selection of them. There's heaps of them. There is one that we're looking at today. Now, it's unlikely to make it on a Google list. In fact, I didn't see it on any of the Google lists I looked at of events that changed the world. But it's nonetheless one of the most significant events ever that has changed the course of our world. Uh, It is easy, isn't it, to read over the passage that's been in front of us today in Luke 4 and not recognise the magnitude of the moment that has been recorded for us. The arrival of Jesus Christ transformed history and has been shaping history ever since right up to this present day. The whole of history is calculated around the birth of Jesus. We divide history into BC and AD, BC before Christ, AD, Addo Domini, in the year of our Lord. It is amazing. And then over the last 2,000 plus years, followers of Christ have shaped the course of history, mostly for good, although sadly not always. No event has impacted our world more than the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, we hear him explain what God has commissioned him to do. This is the moment when Jesus declares to the world in Nazareth, but the rest of us get to hear him, why he has come and what he has come to do. And so it's a momentous claim. In fact, there are three points I want us to see in this passage. You'll see them on your outlines there. I've described them as a momentous claim, a monumental misunderstanding, and a murderous response. But before we get to those points, let's just have a quick look at the setting. Now, after last week, uh, his victory over Satan's temptations in the desert, 
Jesus has been going, we're told, throughout the regions of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And things are going well. Look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Our news about Jesus is spreading, and it's all positive. The people who hear him teach are praising him. But all of it is about to change. Have a look at the end of our section this morning, verses 28 and 29. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue here in Nazareth were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And this is uh, more than just a bad day at the office. Can I say, I'm glad the cliffs are a little bit further away than just close here, but anyway. Uh, But in verse 15, notice, he is glorified by all. And then simply a few verses later in verse 28... And following, they are filled with wrath and trying to murder him. And that's what you call a fall from grace. And what 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 could cause such a turnaround? Well, we actually need to see what happens in between those two reports to understand what has turned people against Jesus. And, And the first thing that Luke alerts us to is that Jesus makes a momentous claim. And so let's have a look at it. Now, in verse 16, uh, Jesus has come to Nazareth where he grew up. Uh, This is his hometown. These are his people. And he does what he normally does on the Sabbath. That is, he goes to the local synagogue and he's invited to teach the Bible, like he's been doing all around Galilee. They've heard about his fame spreading and so they're keen to hear him teach. And look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's what Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now make no mistake, this is a momentous claim. It's actually hard for us to grasp the sheer magnitude of what Jesus has just done and then to try and understand what he's doing as he takes these words of the prophet Isaiah and applies them to himself, words that God has spoken through his prophet about his coming king. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't use the drop-and-flop method of Bible reading here. You know, when you grab your Bible in the morning, you've got to do your Bible reading and you drop it and you see where it opens and hear where God wants you to read today. I don't, I don't advise that, can I just say. Jesus doesn't use that method. He unrolls the scroll, we're told, and he finds the place where Isaiah speaks this prophecy. That is, Jesus turns deliberately to Isaiah 61 and the eyes of everyone, we're told, are fixed on him. What would he say about this important passage? And he says, I am the fulfilment of this scripture. See, here is what God has sent me to do. I am the one anointed by God for this task. And so Jesus is claiming to be God's anointed king, his Messiah, his Christ. 
That's why this is such a momentous claim. But what we need to understand from the book of Isaiah is that God's anointed would would fulfil three important roles. In Isaiah, God's anointed refers to his king who would rule over God's eternal kingdom. But secondly, we see in Isaiah that God's anointed, it refers to his servant. Uh, God's spirit would be upon, upon him and he would die to achieve forgiveness of sins and the salvation for God's people. And then finally, the other way we read of the anointed in Isaiah, it refers to one whom God's spirit uh, would empower to crush God's enemies and bring final salvation to all God's people. See, here is the one that Jesus is claiming to be. I am the one Isaiah is talking about. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. It's a huge claim. And what is it that God has then sent Jesus to do? Well, notice it's to proclaim a message. And then we see it three times in uh, this little section that he quotes from Isaiah, verse 18, uh, to proclaim good news to the poor, or verse 18 again, to proclaim liberty or release to captives and sight to the blind, and then down in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You see, the salvation that God offers to the world comes to us as a message proclaimed by Jesus. But we need to be clear about who this message of salvation is for. Because, can I say, Christians have pointed to this passage in the past to suggest that the church ought to be agitating for social change through various means and even political activism. Now, more commonly, some have suggested that there are kind of two parts to Jesus' actual ministry. That is, uh, he provides forgiveness of sins on the one hand, but social action on the other, so bringing relief to physical suffering. I spent the first 30 years of my life in the Salvation Army, and we had a slogan that said, heart to God, hand to man. That's not a bad slogan. To truly love God is to genuinely love and care for the people of this world. However, that is not what Jesus is saying here. When Isaiah speaks of the poor and the blind, the oppressed, the captive, he's speaking of more than the physically poor and blind and oppressed. I mean, there's no doubt through Jesus' ministry and, in fact, the whole of the Bible that both God the Father and Jesus have a genuine concern for those who suffer physically because of injustice and sin. But Jesus' concern here is not primarily with the physical, but the spiritual. In the context of Isaiah, the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed refers to the spiritual state of Israel in their sin and rebellion against God. God's people are poor because of their sin. They're blind because they they will not listen to the truth of God's word and they're under his judgment. In Isaiah, they're oppressed because they've become captive to their enemies because of God's judgment upon them. I mean, you can read about it in various places. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 59. But the thing about Jesus' claim to be God's anointed saviour is that he's not just the saviour of Israel. He is God's appointed saviour of the whole world. Now look at what God himself says about his anointed servant in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. You can see it there on the screen. He says, that is God... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, God's servant king will bring the possibility of salvation from sin and judgment to everyone, to the whole world. Jesus is saying that he has come for all people who recognize that they are poor, blind sinners who stand under God's judgment and desperately need to be rescued. And it has nothing to do with our social status. It's a momentous claim. So how did Jesus' hometown crowd respond then? Well, look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It seems they're impressed. The passage Jesus read is a, a promise from God of great hope for Israel. They like what he has to say. And this is their local boy made good. I mean, but can I say, here is also where things also begin to unravel. The issue of Jesus' ancestry raises questions in their mind here. They can't fit his family background with his claims. I mean, his dad is just a carpenter. Despite their amazement, they're sceptical. Keep reading. Look at the second part of verse 22. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And the answer is no. No, a million times no. Now, of course, in one sense, yes, he was Joseph's son. But to see him simply as Joseph's son is a monumental misunderstanding, especially of what Jesus is saying here. Luke has already been at pains to point out Jesus' true ancestry. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus is baptised by John, a voice comes from heaven declaring of Jesus, you are my beloved son. Or the family tree in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, declares Jesus to be son of Adam, son of God. Or even as the devil himself admitted in chapter 4, verses 3 and 9, this is the son of God. He's not merely Joseph's son. That's to miss the point entirely. And it accounts, I think, for the change in Jesus' tone here in verse 23. Look what he says. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And they've heard reports about things he had supposedly done just 30-odd kilometres away in Capernaum. You can get a bit of an idea of where that is on the map there. The proverb Jesus says they will quote is a challenge. Do some miracles here in Nazareth as well as you've done in Capernaum to prove yourself. And Jesus makes the point in verse 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, one level, we get it, right? I mean, this guy's the local carpenter's son. Sure, he speaks well. We even like things he's saying, but come on. Do you really expect us to believe that you're God's Messiah, his anointed saviour? But the thing is, Jesus hasn't just appeared on the scene unannounced. I mean, the first four chapters of Luke has helped us to see that. Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 52, that since childhood, Jesus had had increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Or in chapter 3, John the Baptist announced to the crowds when they thought that he might have been the Messiah, he announced that he was simply preparing the way for the one who was coming who was much greater than he was. And the crowds who were there when Jesus was baptised by John heard the voice from heaven about Jesus. And there are now reports about him circulating across the whole region of Galilee. 
Jesus hasn't just kind of put the chisels down yesterday and declared today that he's God's king. And so he says to them, you guys have got a history of this sort of thing. Jesus knows that many of Israel's prophets weren't well received. God's message often meets with rejection, which he goes on to demonstrate in verses 25 to 27. He actually singles out a period, uh, the period particularly of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets in Israel. It was actually one of the, the lowest and the most wicked periods in Israel's history. Elijah and Elisha were both kind of rejected and persecuted in Israel during their ministries. But both had performed miracles outside their homeland for non-Jews, for Gentiles. Jesus is warning his hometown that their reaction to him is just like some of the lowest periods in Israel's past. There's a choice to make about Jesus and a wrong one will exclude them from the salvation and blessing that Jesus brings. And his offer of salvation, again, we've got to keep remembering, is not just for Israel because his offer of salvation is for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. As the Apostle John himself says uh, in his gospel, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, misunderstanding who Jesus is remains, I think, a common problem today, and it's a dangerous problem to have. Uh, Just recently, uh, Mark Latham, the one-time leader of the Labor Party and now One Nation MP, he was standing up for religious freedom in an interview. And in the interview, he claimed to be an atheist, but he said he was concerned about the the unscientific philosophies Uh, such as gender fluidity and especially the sexualisation of young children in the state education system. And he went on to say this. He said, As a Western civilisation, we are heavily influenced by the values, tenets and history of Christianity. He said, I often say to my children every day when we wake up, we might not consciously think of it and talk about it straight away, but how we conduct ourselves during the day our moral sense of right and wrong, good and bad, the rules of civil society that we follow are heavily anchored in the Bible. The Ten Commandments, for instance, remain in large part guidance in the moral standards of civil society. Whoever he was and whatever his significance, Jesus was undoubtedly the greatest moral teacher in history. He lived. He taught lessons that are timeless and probably more relevant today than even in his own time. So all of those things guide and underpin so many of our civilizational values. End of what Mark said. You know, I'm thankful that Mark is concerned about the same kind of things that concern many Christians. I'm thankful that he wants to defend religious freedom. But nonetheless, Mark is a, has a monumental, monumental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. There's no doubt that Jesus was a great teacher. But that is not what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus hasn't come to teach us how to live right. He's come to save us from the judgment of God because none of us are capable of living right, even when we know what the Bible teaches. If you don't accept him as your saviour, as God's king over the whole world, then you remain under God's judgment. You might come to church each week, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Have you understood Jesus rightly? He's come to be our saviour. As C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic 
But if he's neither of those two things which don't, which don't make much sense of the evidence, then he is the Lord of the universe and the only way that any one of us can be saved. Be, be careful not to misunderstand Jesus. So how does his hometown respond then to his pointed warning to them? I'll look at verse 28 and following. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. How do they respond? They want to kill him. It's a murderous response. They take him up onto one of the the cliffs around Nazareth with the intent of throwing him off. As they understand uh, his warning and his rebuke, their admiration turns to fury. <coughs> Excuse me. But his time to die for the sin of the world, while it would come, has not yet come. And Luke simply tells us that somehow he, he simply walks away from them. We're not told how that happens. We're left to um, wonder, but we know that Jesus' time has not yet come. But we don't like being confronted with sin, do we? Our sin. I mean, defensiveness is our first port of call. Excuse-making, buck-passing. But so often it's anger, isn't it? We hate being exposed by the truth. We lash out. And the people of Nazareth, I think, are living examples of exactly why Jesus needed to come into our world. We are so full of sin and rebellion against God. We're not basically good people who sometimes do bad things. We're people who are so broken on the inside. One of the things that is fundamental to our identity is that we are sinners in need of a saviour. We simply cannot live in a way that consistently pleases God. We're captives to sin. We need a saviour. And Jesus says that is precisely why he came. Precisely for people like you and I that he has become to proclaim the good news. And it's not a message of judgment notice, but of salvation from your sin. It's a message that changes your world. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what meeting Jesus in his word does. It changes your world for the better. Now, it's painful to admit that you're a sinner, isn't it? And yet, if we're honest, we know that there's nothing that spoils our happiness more than our sin. But how good is it to know that Jesus came to save sinners and, to turn, and, and in turn to give life and freedom? Have you responded to Jesus' call? I imagine many of you have, most of you. I mean, our world, can I say, is still spinning because God wants people to turn to Jesus. And if you haven't already, you can do it today. Come and chat to me. Come and chat to Josh or anyone who's here. But before we conclude, I just want to point out something that I think is really important. I mean, if you cast your eyes back to verse 21, Jesus has just read from the prophet Isaiah He's handed the scroll back and look at what he says. Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now notice it's as God's word is proclaimed that God does his work of salvation. It's as we hear and believe God's word to us, as we listen to the scriptures and trust them, that we're saved and transformed. It's not by seeing Jesus in the flesh or by experiencing miracles that God saves people. It's by hearing 
and responding to his word. See, what do you believe about the Bible? I mean, Jesus himself teaches us that it's God's word, written by human hands, inspired by God. The whole Bible is written so as to guide us to one overwhelming conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent to save men and women, boys and girls from their sin. It's the authority for all that we do and think as Christians. Otherwise, we have alternative authorities. But from beginning to end, the Bible is all about Jesus. And so first, have you responded to Jesus' call? And second, if you have, have you joined his mission? Because this is good news of God to every one of us. It's good news for the whole world. And therefore, it's equally good news for me to pass on to my family, to my neighbour, to my colleague, to my friend. Jesus has come as saviour for the whole world. He is the best news that is possible for all who receive him, who believe in his name, because to those who do, he gives the power to become children of God. What a joy that is. Let's, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are a God who is so loving that we find it hard to understand. Father, this is a, a news that is so great and so momentous that at times we are guilty of just simply passing over it and not even understanding what you are saying to us. We ask and long that we might understand just how great you are, how good is your salvation that you provide through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see him as Lord and Saviour of the world, but most importantly even for us, that he is our Saviour. And so help us to respond in repentance from our sin, turning away from it, and in trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, let it be a message that is on our lips because it is a message that brings joy and forgiveness and salvation to a world that so desperately needs it. And for this we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen.